The people in Africa, the Christians in Africa, are hungry for God. And that has made them vulnerable to anything that looks like God. Talking here about extremes across the board, everywhere from the traditional way of doing things to the extreme prosperity gospel element of it. And so that has impacted the overall spirituality of the African church in very significant ways. Welcome to the Lausanne Movement Podcast, where we have a passion to accelerate global mission together. I am your host, Jason Watson, and I would like to begin by wishing you a happy and blessed new year in your life and in your ministry. We're going to kick off our 2024 with a rich and insightful interview with Delphine Fanfon. Delphine lives and serves in Cameroon as the CEO of Me For Real International an organization dedicated to guiding the next generation in discovering their identity and purpose in Christ. She is also the regional leader for Africa and the Cameroon country team leader at LeaderSource SGA, a ministry committed to developing healthy leaders for the church. Now, as I mentioned, our interview is jam-packed with insightful content. Delphine and I speak about the cultural and religious landscape of Cameroon, her experience of growing up as a pastor's kid, how her and her organization help the next generation discover their identity and purpose. And Delphine shares personal lessons from failure, the need for humility and vulnerability in the African church, and also about what the global church can learn about leadership and spirituality from the African church. Let us dive in to my interview with Delphine Fanfon. Delphine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's really great to have you with us today. I truly appreciate you willing to give up your time. We are here at the Africa Gathering and you've been serving and you've been giving of your time and your energy <laughs> to so many people. And on behalf of our podcast listeners, I just want to, at the start, thank you for being willing to give us some of your time and to speak into the international audience. It's an honor for me, always a privilege to share and contribute my little bit to the journey that we all are on together. So thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So I would like us to begin by giving you an opportunity to share a bit of your background, a bit mm -hmm. of where you come from with our, our podcast audience. We've got a global audience, people from all over the world that are listening to this. Could you share with us a bit of your upbringing, growing up in Cameroon, what the religious landscape is like, and how you ended up where you are as a, as a leader? Sure. So born and raised in Cameroon, for those who may or may not know, Cameroon is bilingual. There are two of its 10 regions that are English speaking and then the other eight are French speaking. So I was born and raised in the English speaking part of Cameroon into a pastor's home. And I grew up in the church. I always joke and tell people I probably started going to church before my mom knew she was pregnant with me. <laughs> so we were a church family. We would go to church every opportunity we got. So I think I grew up with some kind of a familiarity with the gospel, which then made me, for lack of a better word, feel entitled to the gospel message itself. I remember feeling really upset when some of my friends whom I knew were doing bad things would come to church and I would see them telling stories or even sharing a testimony of what God did. I'm like, you don't get to talk in here. So I felt my family, because we sacrificed so much for the mm -hmm. church growing up, I felt like I was entitled to some special place in God's heart. Mm -hmm. It took, I think what I consider my second conversion is God showing me that 
I'm not that big a deal, but he loves me. <laughs> and that that began for me the journey that I still am on today where I realistically saw myself the way God saw me. And it's this dynamic between you're not so awesome and yet you're awesome <laughs> at the same time. So it was for me one of the most difficult things to confront growing up. Uh, but has been the most freeing at the same time in my journey with the Lord. And so I very quickly became dissatisfied with just being called a pastor's daughter or just being grouped in the church. I, I wanted more. I wanted to know who really was I when you took away all these other people. Who was I? And that has remained an important question that I ask, I try to clarify, okay, Lord, who am I? Who are you? And what do you want me to do? I think those three questions have become key questions in my journey. And I would say that those three questions have led me here because people think sometimes, and when I talk with Cameroonians, they're like, oh, tell me how you planned it, how you, you know, and I don't have that capacity for long-term planning and you know I do pursue with stubbornness the things that I'm convinced I should pursue but I don't know that I ever got where I am because I sat down and closed my eyes and thought okay 10 years from now I want to be that person and then I made a roadmap on how to get there for me it was a lot easier than that it was Lord who am I who are you what do you want me to do and the more I kept asking the what do you want me to do question the more doors just opened up for me there was a process I mean time fails me to get into the pain it's sometimes I think as leaders we we assume that when I see who I am tomorrow morning I become it but there is that process between all the time of taking you from where you are to where God wants you to be that growing and maturing process I have had my share I still am on it <laughs> and it's painful it's challenging but nothing that stubborn obedience to God can't pull any leader through and so I consider myself a product of God's grace in so many ways I've made too many mistakes. I've taken too many wrong turns, but it's almost as if you take a wrong turn and before you get to the end of that road, God is there waiting for you to say, hey, we weren't supposed to go here. Let's go back this way. Or you, you know, so it's just that God's grace and the ability to follow him one step at a time, I would say, is what has led me here. Wonderful. Could you share with us, you mentioned a second conversion, a moment yeah. where God humbled you in his presence and it birthed those questions that have led you to where you are. Could you share that story with us? Sure. I, the whole entitlement thing, it ran very deep. I was very bitter as a teenager because I felt my father, he gave his life to the church and he was never always treated with respect by the Christians, his leaders, and that would really upset me. I remember feeling very angry at God for not even honoring this man. Like I could see how much he was pouring, sacrificing. And so it just put me in a place of bitterness. I was bitter without even realizing it. And the whole time I was trying to perform to impress people at the same time that I was hating what they were doing, you know. And so 
there was a time when I literally got sick physically. My body crashed. I had to go through numerous surgeries within a very short time because the doctors weren't sure what was going on. They kept exploring this and they would diagnose that and then they'll do a surgery and it's not what it is. But I look back now and I think what God was doing was bringing me to a place where I had no strength, no energy, nothing to draw from to keep up with the performances I was putting up. And I remember lying flat on my hospital bed after the fourth surgery and feeling so sorry for myself because I think the mask that I used to cover all what was going on on the inside was my activity and my performance. And having gone through four major surgeries within such a short time, my HB had dropped, physically I was weak, and as the anesthesia was wearing off, I cracked my eyes open and the room was packed. My father was still a church pastor then. And so the Christians, when they hear pastor's daughter has been operated upon, everybody runs there. And it was so loud. The anesthesia hadn't worn off at all. And I was just wishing in my heart that everyone would just go away. So I closed my eyes. My mom was sitting right next to my bed. And she didn't notice that I was awake. And in that instant, I heard a voice that said to me, while you're busy trying to be her, no one is being you and I am disappointed. I knew exactly who her was and I, I shook. Then my mom noticed I was awake. Then everyone noticed I was awake. And I thought, who said that? And it turned out nobody. It was literally the Spirit of God speaking to me because in my performance, I had put myself up in competition with my older sister. And if she went to school and had an A grade, I wanted an A plus. If she had a B, I wanted a B plus. It seemed as if the goal of my life was to outdo her. And that was the moment when the Lord ministered to my spirit and he said, you don't have to try to beat anyone, just be you because you disappoint me if you're not just being the person that I made you to be. And so that's where this second conversion started. And so the rest of my life since then, I would say has been lived trying to understand, okay, Lord, who am I? Who is this person that you need me to be so that I can, you know, radiate all of the glory that you intend for me to yeah, that's the podcast version of my second conversion. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Before we move on and chat about your ministry in Cameroon, I wanted to stay for a moment and ask you a question about your upbringing as a pastor's kid. There are going to be many people who are listening to this podcast, who are ministers, whether in local church or in the global mission field. Growing up as a pastor's kid or a missionary kid comes with its own sense of challenges. Um, you mentioned the performance having to, to look a certain way for people to respect you, respect your father, respect your mother. How did you come through all of that? How did you work through it? And what lessons do you learn in terms of discovering for yourself a relationship with God? And you mentioned seeking, like asking the question, who am I? Uh, what advice would you give to the pastors, ministers listening, or perhaps even a pastor's kid or a missionary kid who mm -hmm. is listening to the podcast? I think that one of the tragedies of leadership is when leaders, pastors or missionaries get so carried away by the ministry that they forget the primary ministry. I don't know that I would have turned out okay if my father didn't invest intentionally in spending time with us. He was never always there the way I wanted him to be. 
But he had a policy, and we always ate dinner together. It didn't matter where you were. It didn't matter what you were doing. We all knew 6 p.m. was curfew, and if you're not home at 6, you get punished, literally. I look back now, and I think that was his way of giving us his attention. We would sit there, we'll have dinner, and we'll just tell stories for the rest of the evening. There would be times when some of that would mean discipline action against whoever was being bad during the day. But I think the realities that leaders face in ministry are very overwhelming. And the responsibility to set the boundaries falls back on the leader. So if you're a leader listening to me, please realize that even God recognizes your family as your first ministry. I work with a lot of pastors' wives who are hurt and bitter against the church because they feel like they have to compete with the church for their husband's attention. That ought not be so. I know a lot of pastors' kids who unfortunately didn't turn out okay, you know. They just, their hearts couldn't handle it. Personally, I think there was never a time when I doubted my father's love for me. There were times when I wished he were around more, but when I became a Christian, I, I literally gave my life to the Lord alone at night. Everyone was asleep. I just felt, okay, there was this strong conviction and my, I confronted my need for God before the whole discomfort with just being a pastor's kid set in. And so I never even had anyone take responsibility for my discipleship and I guess a lot of people just assume, oh, she's a pastor's kid. She has it all figured out. Oh, she knows. No. One of the things I tried to do, which I didn't succeed, unfortunately, was I tried to identify mentors who could accompany me on my journey because I felt like there were things I wanted to share, to process with another adult not necessarily my dad or my mom. And so I reached out to the three people. Unfortunately, none of them took me up on it. But I think that taught me to be intentional about my own growth as an individual. Because when I couldn't find someone to lean on, I fell back on God. I was like, okay, Lord, you have to teach me. You have to show me what this life should be and how I should live it. And that, I think, even made my conversations with my father more meaningful. Because... We, I'm fourth in a family of six. And so even when my dad was home, it wasn't guaranteed that I could have one-on-one -on -one time with him. But then I started asking specific questions about the things I was wrestling with. And that's the relationship we shared until the Lord took him home about two years ago. So I think for the pastor's kids listening, if I had my way, I would say I would flip the magic wand and just have your parents there all the time. But the truth be told, sometimes we think we need a balance. I have found the word balance to be very misleading because balance sometimes would suggest, okay, if I have 12 hours in a day, balance would suggest six hours for ministry, six hours for family. It's not realistic all the time. And so the way I like to see it is more like attention that we hold to get like, you know, sometimes it would swing up in against this one. And then we have to, you know, as long as it's moving, as long as it doesn't stay lopsided, I think everyone will be fine. But when it is, when we're being intentional, if in a season there is so much going on in church, you barely have time for family, it's fine. If provided when that season is over, you're now going to devote 
enough time, you know. So that would be my advice for leaders. Manage the tension. And for kids, own your responsibility. Blame is one of the most frustrating things to have to deal with. For a while, I struggled with blame, wanting to put the responsibility for my own growth on other people. Mm-hmm. It, it works in the moment. It delivers temporary gratification and satisfaction. <laughs> but then tomorrow you wake up and you face yourself in the mirror. Wow. And you know, you didn't do. You had the power to do something. What did you do with it? And so if you're a pastor's kid, it doesn't matter that your father is a pastor or your mother is a minister or whatever it is. God expects you to take charge of your own growth and your own development. And the minute you get intentional about it, then you can even become a blessing to your father and your mother in ways that equilibrium or that tension can become less hurtful to more family members than it otherwise would be. Thank you for that. I mm-hmm. have children of my own and I'm taking okay. lessons, <laughs> taking notes. <laughs> And maybe one day when they're old enough, I might even share this podcast <laughs> with them so that they can take notes as well. Okay. Oh, I would love for us to, to shift focus and talk about the work that you're doing here in Cameroon, here in Africa. You started an organization called Me For Real. Could you unpack for us how that came about, the, what the vision and mission is and what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, so that second conversion, that's where that vision came from because when I decided, okay, Lord, show me and i started just following and listening and trying to understand me to discover me i started liking me (laughs) it was it was very freeing to not have to be anything else but to just yield to this beautiful vision that god already has for your life which all he needs from you is to submit to And the more I did that, the more freedom I found, the more exciting my life became. And I remember at one point now thinking, okay, I have a younger sister. And I started asking her questions like, do you ever feel the pressure to be like me sometimes? Do you ever? And I just was asking everyone around me that question. And they would look at me like, what is she talking about? But those were like initial, that's when the vision was forming in my spirit. And then I remember very clearly reading the Bible one time and I stumbled on 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, where Paul is saying, praise be the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we might in turn comfort others. That was what I consider my call to ministry, literally, because then I realized the weight of the responsibility that lay on my shoulders for having been trusted with this, you know, these discoveries and this freedom that I was enjoying. And so I started intentionally seeking the Lord. Initially, Me For Real was never really intended to be a thing (laughs) on its own. I was so excited. I went to my church pastor because I'm thinking, I grew up in the church. I'm a pastor's kid. If I'm messed up this much, then there would be many young people in this church that are messed up. And so I went there all excited, expecting them to just embrace me, embrace the vision, give me the platform, you know. But no, my excitement wasn't met with and excitement at the end. I remember one summer holiday where I took my time and I wrote a letter, like I wrote letters to seven churches in my city. And I said, this is what I've discovered. This is how exciting it is. This is what we can do while the students are on holiday. And I gave them an outline for a week and I didn't hear back from anybody. And so for a minute, I just, I thought, okay, this is nothing, forget it. And I did, I got on, I went and got a job. I was working with one organization in community development. And then one day my peace just 
I just lost my peace and this thing <laughs> that I was carrying in me just wouldn't let me be. And so I said to the Lord, okay, Father, if this is something you want me to devote my life to, you have to prove it to me. You have to prove that it's needed because I had interpreted the silence of the pastors as, nah, we don't need it. It's not that awesome. Forget it. And so I prayed that prayer and I decided there was a Christian radio in Bamenda, uh, the town where I lived at the time. I went there and I purchased 30 minutes airtime on a Thursday morning when I knew that every young person should be in school. And I did a program, I called it You Are Unique. And I used excerpts from Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. And I said to the Lord, it's gonna be an open call, a, a whatever, phone-in program. And I said, all I need is one, just one young person that calls during this program to tell me, I feel as if you're talking to me and that will be it. I went to this radio station. I did my 30 minutes, nothing. <laughs> so I left, I said, okay, see, I told you, this is not something I should be investing in. And I went back to my office, which wasn't very far from the radio station. And shortly after I settled back on my desk and I was getting ready to resume work, my secretary at the time came in and she said to me, there is someone here to see you. I said, okay, let the person come in. I occupied, I mean, regardless of my age at the time, God just put me on a very top leadership level in this organization. And so my secretary was actually older than I was. So I said, okay, let the person come in. But she just stood there staring at me. She had this look on her face. And then I said, is there a problem? She said, it's not like all the other people that come here to see you because I would receive like big people in the city, government officials and stuff. I said, okay, is this a human being? She said, yes. I said, okay, then let the person come in. And so she goes back out and a few seconds later, a young boy walks into, into my office. It always brings tears to my eyes narrating this. And he had in his hand a little handheld radio set tuned to that radio station. He was wearing flip-flops that were worn and torn and had holes in them and all these things. And he sat down across from me and he said, I came to thank you. I said, why? And he said, oh, I lost my mom when I was young. My father remarried and my stepmom has not treated me with kindness. He sent all my step-siblings to school except me. Recently, I felt abandoned by God. Uh, until this morning when you came on the radio and started talking and it felt as if you were talking to me. I didn't have money, I couldn't call, so I decided to come to the radio station to see you. Wow. When I got there, they said you had gone back to your office, so they gave me directions and I came here to thank you. And I said to him, no, thank you. You literally just changed my life. Mm -hmm. And that was the one that I needed. And that from that moment on, I knew, okay, I didn't have to wait for the church to warm up to the vision any longer. There were young people out there who were feeling crushed and bound and needed to find this freedom. And that's how I brought together a group of friends, shared the vision with them. I didn't even know what to call it at the time because I just knew what I had discovered. I knew what it was doing to me and I knew that there were more people out there who needed this. And so before I think we started having these meetings, I remember one day I was sitting in church actually, and because I kept asking myself, okay, if we're going to register this as a separate organization, what are we gonna call it? And I tried getting creative to come up with names and nothing seemed to fit. And then I was sitting in church one Sunday and the pastor was preaching the most boring message that I ever heard. 
And I just checked out mentally and I went to the text and I was just trying to listen. Okay, Lord, you have to tell me something here. And then that name dropped in my spirit. And I thought, okay, me for real. I wrote it down in my journal and it just seemed very fitting to call this me for real. So me for real basically exists to help. We started with young people, but now it has grown to include children and even adults to discover and find a secure identity in Christ and then free themselves to live the purposes that God had in mind for them when he put them on earth. So. And what kind of strategies do you do or questions do you ask to, to help people find their identity in Christ? And maybe even, you know, in order to center ourselves in Christ, we need to shed other identities. Could you unpack that for us? We say in Mifuru, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to that. Because depending on where people are when they get to us, some people get to us when some seeds have already been sown and they're asking questions about their faith. Those people are ready to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. The majority of them, though, that we work with are people that are performing just like I was <laughs> back in those days who have learned the art of looking the part, even in church. And some are carrying wounds that they have received in the church. We very quickly realized that if we are going to get to build, win their trust, we don't have to throw the Bible in their face. And so that looks different for different people. But taking an interest in the person and loving them for them, nobody wants to feel like a project. They don't want to feel like you're doing this so that you go and write a newsletter saying, oh, one more came to Jesus and all that. We have had to adopt some very non-conventional ministry practices to be able to protect the trust that we're trying to build, as well as just create the safe spaces that these young people need to really open up to you. And and when you get that heart connection is when, for me, my favorite part of that journey is when after, because we, we do things like character education. At the end of the day, everyone needs to be a person of character, Christian or not. And so we look for those common grounds and we focus on them. We run clubs in schools. We have conferences and seminars for young people. We, we try to cast a wide net to connect with them. And then when we have their attention, then we begin to the journey of digging deeper on their personal issues with each one as needed. And my favorite thing is when a young person comes up to me and says, these things you're teaching us, I can tell that you practice them as well. But when I look at my life and I look at your life, there is something you have that I don't have. What is it? There, you can pull out the biggest Bible that you have in your home and share the gospel with them. So it's a journey, pretty much, that we, we engage with each of the young people that we serve. For some, it takes a very long time to trust us, depending on where they've been and how deep their wounds run. For others, it takes a shorter time. Some from Christian backgrounds really don't want to hear you quote scripture to them in the first few weeks, months, sometimes years. We just literally keep asking the Lord the question, what do you want me to do with this person? Where is this person at? I mean, right now, I'm in that place where I sense the Lord inviting me to deeper communion with him because I think that the world today is at a place where the need for secure identity in Christ has never been higher 
And I, I, for a long time, I felt like, Lord, am I missing something? Are we missing something? What more could I be doing? And I think that peace is just our communion with God. Sometimes it's easy to go off on strategies and all these different things. And before you know it, you've crossed that fine line from using strategy as a means to using strategy as an end in itself, just because you have maybe partners or people that you have to answer to a board or something like that that's one of the things which i tell my board like <laughs> when we have meetings sometimes they're like your budget for the year and this and that i'm like you guys know that at the end of the day we're only going to do what god wants us to do right so we try not to hold on too tightly even to the strategies that we come up with we evaluate like after every event after every encounter and we're always asking the question what could go differently and i think that even in and of itself is it's a delicate thing because there are people on my team who need a lot of affirmation and i feel like my preoccupation with what could have been better sometimes blinds me to what went well and I, then i don't affirm them as much as i should so ministry is tricky and i find that you can never go wrong as long as you're depending on god which is what we try every day to do so could you paint us a picture of cameroon the religious landscape the cultural landscape share with us how you intentionally reach out to the next generation you mentioned specifically you know teenagers young adults even adults how do you use the gospel and how does the gospel and the culture of Cameroon and the religious landscape of Cameroon intersect? Cameroon is predominantly Christian. I think we put Christianity in the last statistics I looked at is put at 60, 61 percent. Then there is Islam, 30, 30-ish percent, and then other African traditional religions. What we have found is that every Cameroonian, for the most part, believes in God. Yeah, whatever that turns out to mean at the end of the day. And so for the past, what, five to six years right now, there's been tensions in Cameroon. So Cameroon is bilingual, as I mentioned earlier. And the, the minority English-speaking Cameroon has felt marginalized ever since independence. And so tensions have built over the years that literally spilled over in 2016. And since then, there's been ongoing fighting, actually, in the Anglophone parts of Cameroon. And so I used to live in the English-speaking part. I had to relocate to Yaoundé, which is the capital city, because my work required like constant on online access, which often got restricted because of the crisis. And so as me for real, in the past few years, we have noticed like an influx of internally displaced persons. The crisis has been really bad. I think the figures are over a million of those who have been displaced to, to the, the major cities in Cameroon. Some are in Nigeria, refugees, and their statistics are equally quite high. So for some time now, we have been very overwhelmed with these IDPs and the trauma that comes with it. A lot of them have seen their relatives killed in the most gruesome ways. And so trauma counseling has constituted a key focus of, of the work that we have done recently, which is where we try to meet people where they are, help them heal, and then introduce the gospel to them. 
uh, eventually. Some for those who are Christians, like when we do our intake assessments and everything, we want to know from them, do you want a biblical approach to your counseling? Some say yes, some say no. And so we just try to work with them based on what they prefer. And then even for the students, because they get forced out of the places they used to call home, then they find themselves in these different cities, they have to go to school. We have had a very high prevalence of violence on campus. There have been cases of students stabbing teachers to death and high drug addiction rates and some of those things that are happening. And so we have just been more aggressive with engaging with schools. The school, not all school administrators embrace the non-educational aspect of a child's development, which is what we're trying to do because we go to them and we propose a character development curriculum, which we can have run like a club on the campus to gain access to the kids, listen to their stories, create avenues where we, they can just talk and then occasionally take them out of the campus to network like picnics or seminars that bring students from other uh, schools as well. And so it's been a big, a big trial and error season for us, really, with all these very fast moving pieces. For a while, we ran a food pantry and because we thought if people are hungry, you cannot talk about, you know, some of these deep issues. And so we invested a lot in food pantries and suddenly we realized, OK, the focus is too far down physical sustenance and they are becoming entitled and the the purpose of it is being lost then we revi we revised our strategy and and, and implemented what we now call a choosing to thrive strategy rather than just trying to survive, which is where we try to now change their mindsets. Because I think when, when, when it comes to displacement, either as internal or external, the mindset that people carry can be the most, the biggest obstacle to their rehabilitation and them being able to flourish again in wherever life has thrown them. And so we are now trying to build in elements of, hey, sometimes pain is necessary because you know where you're going so that they can endure some of that in order to get where they're going. Educational support program for the students that are struggling uh, because with trauma, there is no way a child can study and understand. And then some are not able to go to school and we're trying to support the very, very needy cases with school fees and school needs. And, and it's just a myriad of stuff that we do all of which uh, come from what we call our sandstorming sessions. So we don't have brainstorming sessions any longer. We have sandstorming, and that's just the word we coined for sensing what the Spirit is saying about the next quarter, the next year, the next season, and just trying the best that we can to obey that. Delphine, it seems to me that you're doing so much. And you've mentioned a couple of times how you've reevaluated and you've reassessed with your team. Often those times of reassessment come from failure. Would you be willing to share with us how, in some instances, you felt like you failed as a leader and what lessons you've learned from it? I think one of the, the things that stand out to me is something I've come to call the me for real trap. Me for real, the, the only value in me understanding how awesome I am is for the purposes for which I was made awesome. But I think I have found that in some instances, some of the people that God brings to me for real, they camp at the how awesome they are part. 
and they never transition into the mission part of why me for real even exists that's why i have felt like lord what didn't i do well i mean there was a time i thought should i just change the name is me for real misleading people and and limiting their perspective and i remember thinking through it praying about it and just sensing no i think it's just to change the approach of discussing of engaging with different people that god brings i think that when i look at my leadership and failure i think Anything short of what God wants for me is failure. And I look at some of what I go through as an individual leader and I see where God brought me from and where God is taking me. And I want to see more people do that. I want to see more people find that freedom and live it out in these ways and just get shocked every day go to bed wide-eyed shocked that god did that again today you know and maybe it's my impatience or my performance issues again but i look back and i just have this yearning in my heart that god we need we should be seeing more of this happening we want more and i want more and more and more of that so i think overall that's what i would consider my biggest failure in leading this vision um, but at the on the flip side of that is just the reminder again that it's really not me that changes anybody it is god and so i'm learning to take a step step back from the outcome and focus on the input like lord what do you want me to do at this this is where i have control over there it's your territory if these people go and never come back that's your business. But here, what should I be doing and trying to do that right? I think that for me is the biggest lesson I'm learning in all of this. Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing mm -hmm. your own leadership. <laughs> a large part of what you do is also leadership development and yes. training and, and consultation. And mm -hmm. I wish that we had a lot more time for us to unpack that. Mm -hmm. What I would like to talk about in terms of leadership is African leadership. Yeah. As you serve on the continent of Africa. We're obviously talking about a very diverse continent. Yeah. But I would like for us to start on a positive side. We're speaking to a global audience. Mm -hmm. What do you believe Africa has to offer in terms of leadership mm -hmm. to the rest of the world? I think it's a fresh perspective. There are certain realities that African leaders have lived through that have shaped the way they see the world mm -hmm. that people from other continents cannot relate. They can't see, literally. And so I think that every African leader brings a perspective, a strange a sometimes perspective, but definitely one that can sharpen our our missional engagement overall because there is a huge chunk of people that are being left behind in church leadership globally and i think that a part of it is this being stuck in the rut of this is how we do this and knowing that this is how it should be done that the reality that we are so different and yet so similar is something that i believe amplifies the perspective that African leaders bring. And if the global church would just engage long enough with those perspectives, they would find new insights that I believe would move the mission of God forward in ways that other people may never be able to perceive, only because they haven't been where these leaders have been. And I think that's gold that should be mined by the global church. And what about African spirituality or Christian spirituality within the African context? What do you think 
the African church has to offer the global church? I think the African church has... It's hard for me to talk about this without looking at this myriad of different realities that are happening. The people in Africa, the Christians in Africa, are hungry for God. And that has made them vulnerable to anything that looks like God. Talking here about extremes across the board, everywhere from the traditional way of doing things to the extreme prosperity gospel element of it. And and so that diversity in and of itself, I think, has impacted the overall spirituality of the African church in very significant ways. But I think that the hunger for God, the desperation for God, is a genuine thing that the African church can contribute to the global church. It, it, it would look differently in different contexts and in different places, but I think that hunger, if we forget for a minute how that hunger is being managed and stewarded and, and focus on the genuineness of it, I think it's something that can be contributed in terms of spirituality. I know very many people who live on almost nothing, and yet they are the most content Christians I know <laughs> in Africa. I think that ability to find contentment in circumstances that other people would look and think, we need to save this person from this thing, is something that I find the African church bringing also yeah. to the global space. And as you've been working with African leaders, what's one area that you have found that African leaders need to grow in? Humility and vulnerability. That's two. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> no, that's good. Can you unpack that for us? Sure. I think that the African culture is a very patriarchal, patriarchal culture. And it's the image of the leader as the big man. And that brings with it a taboo for vulnerability. And so... Without intentionality, many African leaders don't know how to say, I'm struggling here, help me, or this is happening here, or that is happening there. And so the younger generation of leaders that are, are growing up right now, they smell inauthenticity from a distance. If you're not authentic, they can feel it and they will not follow you. And unfortunately, many older generation African leaders have lived this life for so long that they don't even know that they're doing it. I remember one time when I was running a radio talk show, I invited pastors to share. What are you struggling with? <laughs> and one pastor called me and he told me, he said, what you're trying to push us to do is something that if our Christians found out, they will leave our church. And I thought, what do you mean? And he said, well, the Christian comes to you because you are fine. You are the strong man. You know it. You have the answers. And when they come to you, they're not coming to cry with you. <laughs> they're coming for you to comfort them. And so how can you own your own weakness, you know? And so I think that if African leaders will own the reality that it doesn't matter how much you have it together. There are things you don't have together. We all know that. That's the irony. Because those very people that we're trying to look perfect for, they see our weaknesses. I tell African leaders in our trainings all the time, we are all like a bunch of kids that wet the bed last night and put a towel over it and woke up feeling dry and assume that simply because we don't feel the wetness, nobody can tell, but we can. people can smell wow. us. That's good. As just walking mm -hmm. around. And I think that's why character is such 
a big problem for leaders in Africa as well as it is globally, actually. So if I'm not willing to own my struggle, if I'm not willing to to be vulnerable about it, then I'm going to try to hide it. And I can't hide it forever. It's going to catch up with me. And when we do training and we talk about termites eating at the roots of a tree, and while the tree might look healthy above the ground, maybe bearing fruit, children are playing on it, harvesting these fruits and eating them, there are termites eating the, the roots of the tree on the ground. It's only a matter of time before they eat up all the roots and this tree falls. I know that when the tree falls, it's going to take down other things with it. And so my prayer for every leader, and it's really a prayer of love, is that the termites, if there are any termites that we're trying to hide, that their teeth be sharpened even more so they eat up fast enough. The sooner we fall, unfortunately, some leaders have to crash before they learn, unfortunately. But my big desire really is that we would just grow in our ability to look ourselves in the mirror of God's word, own what we need to grow in and work on it, then we don't have to fall. Mm -hmm. But if I am going to refuse to do that, then the sooner I, I fall, the better for me and even the people that are following me because they are going to suffer too when the leader falls. And so that's why those two things go together for me, the vulnerability and the humility. Because sometimes we think humility is my ability to talk less about myself, but it really is my ability to trust God and others with myself. And so if I can't honestly tell you, sorry, Jason, I'm struggling here. Can you help me? I'm not humble. It doesn't matter how much of a performance I put up before God and before the community. The, the fun is that so many leaders have been hurt by the very churches and the ministries that they are leading. And sometimes they think, okay, I'm just going to kill myself, give it five more years and then go away. But when the hurts that we suffer in community can only be healed within community. And so that's why vulnerability and humility, for me, if any Christian leader only develops two values, let it be those two things. Because I think it opens the door for so much else that would protect us from inevitable falls that can be very costly. Delphine, this has been so rich. And unfortunately, we're going to have to bring the podcast recording to a close. But before we do, we were speaking about African leadership. And as you were speaking, I actually started thinking about international leaders, <laughs> especially within the evangelical context, who have had the termites eat away at their roots and they've crashed, they've fallen, and big public failures. I want you to take a moment to speak to the younger leaders. You're standing on the other side of, of a lot of these great leaders who have fallen. We don't want to become like them. What work can we do so that we can be vulnerable, that we can be humble, so that we can be authentic as we head into hopefully many, many, many years of ministry? I think the first thing is not to think so highly about ourselves. I think the younger generation, and I, I'm one of them, we get cocky, we get proud. You know, every, it's funny how when you look at history, every generation that comes up thinks we are the generation. And then 20 years later, there is a new the generation. I think if we would take a step back and, and realize that regardless of what has happened to those that went before us, we are standing on their shoulders. We can't ignore that. And then seek the treasure 
from that same older generation. Because one of the things that is a big pain in my heart right now is to see how older leaders are treated by the church. My father gave his life to the church, and I could see how towards the end of his life, because he didn't have the energy, the strength to go around and do all these things any longer, younger leaders that he had mentored would look him in the face and ignore him or, you know, not pay attention to, to, he had this habit of walking up to any child of his who gets appointed to any leadership position to share with them, pray with them and encourage them. And he told me stories of how he would go into some offices and literally not be listened to, not be received. And I think, how proud do you have to be as a younger leader to now despise those who have gone before just because maybe, yes, the termites ate at something and they fell. For me, I feel like our ability to serve long and in a healthy way is going to be enhanced when we find our place and stop seeing ourselves as a fountain and see ourselves as part of a moving stream that is God's work. And so we are part of that stream, but we are not it. There are other people that have come before us and there are people that are going to come after us. And so generational relationship, intergenerational engagement for me is priceless if we are going to serve right. There are some of the mistakes that have been made, which we are going to make because we don't take the time to connect and to learn. To be honest with you, even the leaders that have fallen, they have a desire to pass on something that they have learned. And so no leader, in my opinion, deserves to be despised, regardless of what happened to them, what mistakes they made. I feel like we can help them rise, and we will do that by honoring them. We would do that by recognizing that, yes, they brought something. They laid a few bricks on which we now stand. And until we can honor the past, we don't have the right, we don't even earn the right to contribute to the future because we're going to abuse the people that are going to come after us in just the same way. So I think every leader must see themselves, I like calling it the Isaac generation. The people before and those behind, you be the bridge between those two. Let the treasure flow. It is that treasure. If we interrupt it, it's going to rob us and the people coming after us, and we will end up in places that are not going to honor God. Jesus did that. He honored the prophets. He said, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill. He talked about Moses. He talked about the prophets. And then he was able to invest in the 12 who went on now to turn the world upside down, pretty much. And so every leader, I believe, should know that the value or their influence, the true measure of their success is not what happens when they are still on the scene. It's what happens when they are long gone or when they have left the playing arena. And so with that, then we can find the right perspective to humble ourselves and not think that we, we are going to, I don't know, reinvent <laughs> certain things and we will not lose much energy on things that have paths that have already been blazed which we could just walk through oh that's so good i love that picture of us not being a fountain but a part of the stream and it's not about us it's such a humbling realization and it's helpful as well because there's not so much pressure to be a fountain but to be a part of the history that god is making in the world and the kingdom impact that he's making
Delphine, thank you so much for your time. This has been so rich. If someone is listening to this and they're inspired by what you're saying, how could they follow you? Where can they find you? Where can they find out more about your work? Okay, so I'm on Facebook, Delphine Fanfon, I think is the name I use on Facebook. LinkedIn as well, I'm Delphine Fanfon. Yeah, Instagram, I don't even know what I'm called on Instagram, so don't worry. I'm kind of old, even though I'm not that old, but anyways or they can they can email me delphinefanfon at gmail.com that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me wonderful thank you so much for your time thank you for having me well i hope that you enjoyed today's interview on the lausanne movement podcast if you found today's interview helpful won't you take a moment to rate and review our podcast and don't forget to share it with a friend next week we'll be back with another in-person interview from the lausanne 2023 africa gathering Until next week, cheers.